0: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Angela walton Raji, the award-winning author, genealogist, blogger, podcaster, and known nationally for her research and work on Oklahoma Native American records. Her book, Black Indian Genealogy Research, African Americans Among the Five Civilized Tribes, is the only book of its kind focusing on the unique record sets pertaining to the Oklahoma Freedmen. Angela has also published two volumes called Freedmen of the Frontier from a blogging project that unfolded around 2017. She is speaking in her book about people who were once enslaved by Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole Indians. So let me give a warm welcome to Angela Walton Rogers so that she could tell us more about the Freedmen of the Frontier. Welcome, Angela. Oh, thank you so much, Bernice. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and I know this is your passion and your labor of love. And so let's start off by explaining to people who are the freedmen of the frontier. Well, of course, the frontier,
1: meaning the the border of what was the United States, and the western frontier, those lands that were west of the United States and that bordering state being the state of Arkansas and the lands to the west. Well, immediately to the west of the state of Arkansas was a territory designated as Indian Territory. And through a series of treaties with five different tribes, it was decided to relocate people from their original homelands East of the Mississippi to this designated territory called Indian Territory. Many people refer to the Indian removal as the Trail of Tears. This was particularly painful for some of the tribes who, had, who suffered tremendously on this forced removal. But what is not often pointed out is that many individuals who were citizens in these tribes took African. Slaves with them and took them westward into the frontier. The Civil War came, and at the end of the Civil War, well, we know the 13th Amendment freed slaves or at least abolished slavery. It didn't end slavery for everyone, but it abolished the institution officially in 1865. However, that did not affect those enslaved people. In the territory, Indian territory, it took five different treaties to be signed with the United States, and those treaties were signed in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and it was really the abolishing of slavery that occurred in 1866 with those treaties. So they were not freed people until 1866 onward. So those freedmen, and we're talking several thousand people who lived on the frontier, many of whom arrived on the same trail of tears, and lived as free people or freedmen, as they were called, on the frontier, that land bordering the United States
0: and Indian Territory. So now that you, you've just given us this overview of, who the freedmen are, why did you decide to actually document the lives of 52 families in two volumes? Okay. Well, first
1: of all, it's very interesting when you look at Oklahoma history. It is rarely, if ever, mentioned that slavery took place on the soil that is now Oklahoma. Oklahoma did not become a state until 1907, but prior to that, you had enslaved people who were brought westward on the forced migration and afterwards who remained in the land now that they knew as home. They lived in the Cherokee Nation, in the Choctaw Nation, and so on. This was their home. They were not citizens of the United States, but the fact is that you rarely find the history of these freed people written in the annals of Oklahoma history. And one of my goals was to put people back on the historical landscape where they belonged, where they had lived, died, toiled, where they made a contribution to the lands that they lived. And it was a personal quest for me. On my father's side, my people are Choctaw freedmen. Something that I had grown up knowing our ties to the Choctaw Nation, but because it's never, ever mentioned, I never knew until I found my own family records that they were Choctaw freedmen, a word you don't hear mentioned, a word that many people today are uncomfortable to say uh, slaves, uh, shh, freedmen. Uh, well, you know, we talk about the Trail of Tears, but you don't talk about all of the people on the trail, and of course, these are people who received land allotments before statehood because they were citizens in the land of their birth in Indian Territory, and they did not certainly acquire any citizenship until suddenly there was a new state in the Union in 1907. And my interest was to tell the stories. Now, why 52 families as opposed to 42 or 53 or whatever? Well borrowed a a blogging meme that some people use in the blogging community among genealogists and many people take on a challenge of documenting um, 52 ancestors in 52 weeks and it's sort of a year-long theme that people will take to write about their family and I said you know what this would be a good uh, blogging meme to use but as opposed to 52 of my personal ancestors and my ancestors were just good, regular people. But I realize there are some people who've never had their stories told ever, and those are the freedmen. The regular, good people who survived removal to the West, who survived slavery, who survived the Civil War, who survived westward expansion because these people lived on the western frontier and who've never had their stories told. So I said, well, this is three years ago in 2017. I wonder if I could do a family a week on on my blog. Just one family a week, and I'll alternate. I'll do maybe a Cherokee family. Next week I'll do a Friedman family from the Choctaw Nation, and the next week a Chickasaw Nation, and so on with Creek and Seminole. So I just rotated from one tribe to the other and just selected a family to write about. And at the end of the year at the end of 52 weeks I had documented 52 families in 52 weeks and uh and I'm really very very happy that I did that because at least now there are 52 more stories that have ever been written about African
0: descended people in the state of Oklahoma absolutely So when you speak of 52 families, how did you select the families to write about?
1: Okay, well, the records of um, the five tribes, um, the five civilized tribes as they're sometimes called, and that term was uh, used to describe tribes that had... I guess, early exposure to Europeans. They were traders, some of them. And they had become exposed to European settlers very early on. And because of this, people influenced each other, people from different cultures. So many people started adapting the farming methods. They started adapting other aspects of European culture. Some became particularly, many became Christian. Uh, Presbyterian being a very, very uh, large denomination that was of influence in some of the tribes. And some of them became wealthy, and some of them, as wealthy Southerners, adopted the practice of black chattel slavery, which is one reason slaves were taken west. They had purchased slaves and taken them westward with them. But in terms of researching them, when I had discovered my family back in 1991, mind you, at the National Archives, I began to realize My family was not the only family. I recognized the surnames of people I had grown up around in in Fort Smith and nearby Oklahoma and realized, wait a minute, wow, our stories up here are here, and they're documented so well. And at that time, it was only microfilm. Well, now we have digitized copies. Ancestry. dot com has them. Folgerree. dot com also has the records of the not just the freedmen, but of, of all citizens of these five slaveholding tribes, and. Um, and on Family Search, you can find land allotment records. And I decided, well, I have both full 3 and Ancestry, so I have access to these records um, in more than one way. And I decided, let me try to just make sure that I'm representing all five of the nations, but some were random. I would just close my eye well not close my eyes, but just sort of randomly <laughs> click on something, open up a data set if I was doing a Chickasaw family that week and just click on a name. I didn't have to know the name. And if the file, you know, would you know, look very interesting, it had some extensive data that was there, I would just talk about it. Now, I did towards the end of the year Uh, because remember this is every week I'm doing this, Uh, I would say, well, have I left out anyone important or have I left out someone who's never really had their stories told? And um, so I said, well, you know what? I didn't even put my own family in there. And I decided that, yeah, maybe I will put at least my own family in there because that's who propelled me to get involved with this research. And particularly once I found out that this is something it's just never been talked about, as if it's such a frightening thing for people in Oklahoma to say the word freedmen. We were part, we were there, and we were not freed people until 1866. But before that, yes, we were enslaved people. But at the same time, we were people. People who deserve mention. Um, I sat in on an archaeology discussion this past weekend, which was fascinating, wonderful to hear what's going on. But uh, I asked a question, you know, uh, because they're looking for people to be involved and and local people and people in these small towns and communities. I mentioned a simple, you know, when it was Q&A time, there are some African Choctaw communities down in the southeast corner of the state, are you going to be visiting them? Now, they were reading the questions, but the person reading couldn't bring themselves to say African. Well, there are families in the southeast, and, yeah, we're looking for all kinds of people. There is such a discomfort. We are not there we do not exist to make people uncomfortable, but we do reserve that right to tell our story, to put our story on the landscape where it occurred. It's okay, and it's long overdue, and that's why I made that commitment. This is long overdue, and I urge other people who descend from 20,000 people who were labeled as freedmen right before statehood uh, during the land allotment phase, known as the Dawes Dawes Roll or the Dawes Enrollment Process. Tell your family stories. Document your communities. This can be done. Um, and I guess I've, I've, I've kind of given an idea of why. But, um, and the process, as I said, I try to be very objective and um, select families, as I said, from each of the five tribes, which is why I rotated. it. one one, from one tribe to another, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, et cetera, Creek and Seminole. Uh, Towards the end of the project, I did make a commitment to write about two families whose names are used all the time, but nobody talks about the people as people. I'm referring in the Seminole Nation. There are two tribal bands that are freedmen bands, the Dosa Barker's band and the Caesar Bruner band, but nobody can tell you much about them. Now maybe the descendants can, but where are their books? Where 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 are they writing? Well it's okay if they haven't. I was gonna write a little bit of something. Who was Caesar Bruner the man? Who was Doser Barkas, the man? These men had wives, they had children, they have descendants. I have even found a descendant of Caesar Bruner, a man who lives in British Columbia in Canada, whose ancestors migrated to canada in 1911 and settled in alberta now that's west of saskatchewan okay in western canada and have remained there and they have now descendants living in in western canada and their story deserves to be told their descendants have a right to this and anyone i think if you really research it you'll find fascinating people fascinating stories wonderfully rich stories that need to be told. And I'm hoping others with Oklahoma ties, particularly from the territory, will start to tell those stories.
0: When you began to talk about why you're doing what you're doing, you you said documents. So Uh tell us about the documents. What did you find? What did you use? And how did you put these stories together? Okay. Well,
1: Every family, right before statehood, uh, statehood didn't just happen, you know, one day in in 1907. Hey, let's join the Union. Um, Statehood became taught in Indian territory for decades before it actually happened, decades before the 20th century. And certainly, I guess the beginning of the end, and this is just my opinion, really. Started officially in 1889 with the Oklahoma land rush. It was decided that certain lands would be opened up for white settlement, and um, there would be this land rush in 1889. And people from multiple states came, that with the sound of the cannon, um, people will be able to make a dash towards the land and to stake a claim. Well, of course, there were some who also got there beforehand and who started before the cannons went off. They, they got there sooner, which is where the expression sooner, Oklahoma sooner, actually comes from those who jumped the gun. But I digress a bit. Um, in terms of really looking at who, I guess, who the people were, I was so intrigued myself with um, the fact that these are. I guess I just want to say I keep saying again and again, and I can't help but say it. Sort of untold stories, but there are records that are there that reflect this process before statehood, and this process it was decided. The lands that were opened up in 1889, then 1890 and 91, people started coming to the territory. Statehood was coming. It was decided. You know, these tribes, in, within their own culture, their system of government, self-rule, they own land in common. Well, we've got, we can't be having them owning land in common. we got folks coming in wanting to stake a claim. Well, let's, let's give everybody who lives there Some land. Let's give them land allotments, and then, after everybody who can prove that they are a citizen, uh, we give them an allotted amount of land. Then we open the rest of the of the state that's approaching for white settlers for white settlement. So what happened, the tribes decided, um, I'm not sure, in the Cherokee Nation, maybe they got 100-something acres. Every person, even children, in the Creek Nation, everyone got 60 acres. Now, there was a little bit of discrimination when it came to Choctaws and Chickasaws. If you were put on a roll by blood, as it was called, and all these tribes had records by blood, you would receive 320 acres. If you were identified as a freedman or freed man or woman or child of a freed man or woman, you would be given forty acres. Listen to the numbers. Three hundred and twenty if you are by blood or intermarried white. Three hundred and twenty acres, even babies. If you're a freed person, you get forty. And many people will say, oh, 40 acres, that's not bad. They never gave the rest of us our 40 acres. But 40 acres in comparison or in contrast to 320 acres. Oh, so everybody else has eight times the opportunity to generate generational wealth. Oh, well, you black folks, you have one-eighth of that opportunity. And that's something. But nevertheless, records are there. Records exist. They had to sit down. They had to have an interview. Now, some of those interviews have been hidden. Some have been destroyed. Some were never microfilmed, but a plethora of those records do remain. When they sat down and took down the names of everyone, they put their name on a card. Those enrollment cards are on Ancestry.com. Those enrollment cards are on Fold3.com. The interviews of those that do exist, they're on Ancestry.com. They are also on on BOL3.com, and the land allotment records which you can find on ancestry and on family search so i had lots of records to work with and we're talking of the numbers of people who were designated as freedmen formerly enslaved people or their children 20,000 people that means 20,000 files and it's absolutely um, well, I shouldn't say files. I guess it's probably about maybe eight or 10,000 files, but many people in a household added up to 20,000 people. I had lots of records to work with. And it's amazing because with all of these records, there are all of these stories that are there. And all one had to do is simply read. Read the interview. When you see a card, and you look at a person's card, and it gives the name of the, of the head of the house and, and the spouse and the names of the children. But then you also see that this particular person was interviewed, and they tell a story from their life of, oh, yes, my father came west with uh, um, others on the Trail of Tears, and he also came with his brothers, and this person who's in his 70s, Is naming all of his father's brothers. He's naming his uncles. So you're getting multiple generations of stories pouring out of these files. Amazing
0: information. And you also. Yes, this is amazing information. So why don't you give us an example? First of all, I want to ask you what is the difference between Volumes 1 and Volume 2? That's the first question. (laughs) And then the sure. second, I want you to actually tell us a story. Okay. Well,
1: um, as I said, in 2017, I decided to write one story a week about a family, just pulling them out of the record per week. At the end of the year, I had 52, families, 52 family histories that I had documented. I decided to try and take all of those 52 blog posts and put them into book form and and to put them into um, uh, a book manuscript. When of course, I collected all those articles. And, of course, it required editing and a few changes. But I decided to see, well, how large is this going to be? And I had over 500 pages worth of data. (laughs) I just went, I'm not going to write a 500-page book, okay, (laughs) even even though – Most of it had been written because I had already written the histories, but I still was not going to try and undertake a 500-page book. So I decided, you know what, I'll divide it. And so, as I said, one week I do Cherokee, the next week Choctaw, the next week Chickasaw. I said, that's what I'll do. I'll divide it up into two volumes. Volume one would be Cherokee, Choctaw, and Chickasaw Freedmen families, and volume two would be Creek, and Seminole Friedman families, and that's really basically the difference. And um, so, you know, it, with the two volumes, you have all of the families that I documented in that particular year, which was 2017, uh, but as I said, each the volumes are different just because I had to divide the project. Now, you asked about a story. And some of these things are amazing. Now, I used many things. I used the Dawes era records, the Dawes roll, which was a compilation of people whose names were put on this this roll of people eligible to get land that I mentioned. And it's named after Henry C. Dawes who wrote the legislation for this. But um, I not only used the Dawes roll, I used – the slave narratives from um, Indian Territory, well, Oklahoma slave narratives. I also used the Indian Pioneer Papers as well. And anything that would give me a, a story that I could use. And one of the stories that I utilized, that I also had included when I had, was a story that came, and this story, which is in Volume 2, which is the Creek and Seminole story. And I talked about the story of Philip Lewis, and he, taught, he was an amazing man. Actually, the Lewis family, uh, there are two chapters devoted to him. One is sort of his story one of his is his wife's story. They put so much energy after, after freedom came in terms of establishing a life and uh, educating their children. Remarkable, remarkable history, remarkable story. But one that he told when he was interviewed as part of the Indian Pioneer Project, which was an oral history project that occurred in the 1930s, just like the Slave Narratives Project. And he talked about his grandmother, Rachel. Now, this is a man, older man, being interviewed in 1937, talking about his grandmother. And she talked about his grandmother, Rachel, and her husband, his grandfather, King Colonel. And he 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 sort of quotes her story that she would tell. And she started saying, "When I was just a girl, girl, now imagine what's happening and then I'm going to tell you to pay attention to not just what was told, but what you're hearing. When I was a girl, I was taken to a slave market with some other slaves to be sold by a slave trader. My attention was attracted by a large young fellow in the crowd." seemed to never be looking at anyone except me he worked his way closer and closer and when the opportunity presented himself he leaned over to me and whispered if I persuade my master to buy you will you marry me I looked into his face somehow something made me say yes without another word he turned and disappeared into the crowd he was gone I was bewildered. I was lost in a haze of jumble thoughts. Who, who was he to come to me from among the people, the greatest number of people I'd ever seen in my life? Now I'm going to pause right there. This is a woman recalling her life as a young girl, frightened, oh, wow. because she is about to be sold at an auction. She'd never seen that many people there to buy human beings, and she was one about to be purchased. And then, she, so she said, she's standing there, she's frightened, she's terrified. And then she says, then I saw him, head and shoulders, taller than anybody else, made his way through the crowd in my direction. And as he came closer, I saw there was another man with him that came near us and stopped, stood there together looking in my direction. And after a short whispered conversation, they approached my master. And suddenly I was the property of a new master. Who was the owner of the man To whom I'd given my yes King Colonel Our master took King and me To his place And we were married immediately thereafter Though in slavery We were happy Our master was kind Not to separate us During slavery time And after we, made, we were made free people Only God Could separate us That story me, And that is the story Number one The fact that many people dehumanize What happened to African people And here's mm-hmm. a woman Remember her fear on a Slave auction block And The story is that number one She was being taken Away To the Creek Nation This is a story you won't even hear people Talk about In Creek circles about their enslavement of other people. But here's a woman who was experiencing this, who, who told this to her grandchildren. Her grandson, who was now an old man, telling this story so it would not be forgotten. And I'm so glad that he did. Because wow. the reader <laughs> says, Whoa, look at this. Imagine the fear, imagine the mm-hmm. unknown. And here's a lone face in the crowd. This girl being separated from her own parents, her own people that she loved, and had no choice but to stand there like a cow being auctioned off, which she was being auctioned off. It's a powerful story. And again, it this is, is a powerful. Story. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. Absolutely powerful. And it shouldn't be forgotten. And I made a commitment when I read that. Oh, yes. I'm including this story, definitely. So, that's you know, it's one of my favorites. There are many other stories, some similar, some different. All of which are very, 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 very pertinent to the human story, the human right. story that's missing.
0: And I Oklahoma. noticed that in some of your, with some of your stories, you have actual photos. So, where did yes. you get those photos?
1: Well, remember that in many cases, well, this started out as a blogging project. And uh, one of my favorite stories is that of Hagar. And um, I had, you know, posted my stories every week. And after one of my stories was posted, Hagar, Hagar Myers, a woman wrote to me and said, oh, I like the story that you wrote about Hagar Myers. She's my great great grandmother. Would you like to have a picture of her? I'm like, uh, yes. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> she sent me a picture of Hagar Myers. This is the woman who helped to bring about a peaceful end to the Green Peach War. And again, wow, I don't even know if they knew that story. But it prompted her at least to reach out to me and i was so grateful uh another person had shared with me pictures that uh were taken at a cemetery of their family oh i see you have some information about my family here's the headstone of my great 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 grandfather oh my gosh thank you oh wow so thankfully, pictures were shared. Now I did have a picture of Caesar Bruner that was shared by a woman in Oklahoma City many years ago, um, who is one of Caesar Bruner's. Uh, he's the chief. He was the the chief uh, of the Caesar Bruner band, a band that still exists in the Seminole Nation today. And she had a picture of him, and she shared that picture uh, several years ago. So I was thrilled, you know, to have that. Um, so many people, when they see a blog post, now some of the images, such as the schools like the Creek Seminole College or the Tallahassee Mission School. Those were courtesy of the Oklahoma Historical Society. But um, uh, some people were just very generous and kind-hearted to share their images. And, uh, um, you know, I'm eternally grateful. And, of course, they were mentioned in acknowledgments
0: as well. Well, I want to know how... How do you see these two volumes assisting others?
1: Well, first of all, I hope that this will be used as a reference tool. Well, let me back up I won't, before I even say that. I don't know, and I'm, I'm sure that some of your listeners are familiar uh, with them, but I don't know how many people are familiar with heritage books. And heritage books are often books that uh, – them out of a historical society or genealogical society, deciding to document family histories from their community. So you might see Tippa County, Mississippi Heritage Book, and they invite people from all over the county or who have ties to that county, submit your family stories, pictures, photos, and we'll, we'll publish them in a volume, and it should be, you know, X amount of words, not to, ex- not to exceed more than one photo or two photos, and so on. And one of the things I've noticed at genealogy libraries and repositories, number one, there are very few, very few volumes that include African-American families. That's number one. And, of course, number two, as I've said since the beginning of this conversation, there's so little written about African-descended people in what is now the state of Oklahoma. Although, now, if you do, um, you know, you can vary your Google search all kinds of ways, But um, one of the things that you don't see a lot is the mention that, number one, there are people of African descent who lived in what is now Oklahoma eight days before statehood. Typically, you'll find two things mentioned, black towns and the Oklahoma massacre in 1921. Okay, black towns, many established around the turn of the 20th century. Okay, and, of course, the, the, the tragedy of, in Tulsa that occurred in 1921. But we're talking about people who have been present in the territory eight decades before that time who have family stories. As I said, they survived the removal. They survived slavery. They survived the Civil War. They saw westward expansion going literally right past their homestead, right past their door. Their stories aren't told and so that's one thing i hope that this particular two volume set will let people know that number one whoa there are family stories that i could possibly tell as well so my goal is mm-hmm. that number one people will look and see well was in this book oh the five Civilized tribes oh okay well my folks with cherokee freedmen are there cherokee freedmen in here yes there are in volume one Oh, my gosh, they're Chickasaw Friedman. Yes, so I hope it will be a resource, number one. But number two, I hope that people who have ties to these communities and these amazing families will start They can use of these two books as a template. You know what? If your folks are from Tishomingo, there were more than two families in Tishomingo. There were dozens of people who lived there, dozens of people who lived in Nowata, dozens of people who lived in Scullyville, dozens upon dozens of people who lived in Stonewall, who lived in Tatum, all these hundreds and hundreds of stories. Start to document them and tell their stories. Put their narrative out there. You know, many people, the only time they have anything written about them comes at the time of their death. When somebody writes the obituary, what a pity that data is not captured about families except at one time in that obituary at the funeral. And maybe somebody keeps the obituary and somebody else may toss it. But it's time for us to look at the richness and the remarkable story. These are people who were resilient and who survived. And, you know, especially when you talk about Oklahoma, you either hear about cowboys and Indians and, or uh, marshals and outlaws. And if you have ties to the territory, chances are you have all four people in your family. What amazing <laughs> family stories to tell. Rich stories, colorful stories, amazing stories. And I hope that people will use this and say, you know what, I could do this. My folks They all came from Ida and Eagle Town and Luke Fata. Wow, you know what? I should talk about this. Amazing stories. And of good, ordinary people who lived the remarkable times and ordinary people who did remarkable
0: things. Well, tell us a little bit more because you have gone beyond these two volumes. You also have videos, so tell us about your videos. Yes, well, I have
1: a YouTube channel, and um, if you just go to YouTube.com and just you know type in my name, you know, Angela Walter Raji, you'll see my YouTube channel. I have a series of videos. In fact, I think the ninth one is about to to come out in the next few days. I've decided to um make some videos about the freedmen several years ago i was working um with uh terry liggan who's a chickasaw freedman descendant as well as choctaw and um uh i know he has a channel as well and video Grio. and he started telling stories well i've decided in the last oh two months three months to start to take some of these same types of stories i'll say uh and to put them out there. Again, I want to illustrate that there are ways to share this history. Maybe a person is not necessarily comfortable with writing. Maybe that's not one's strength. But one's strength might be being able to document, to to be a documentarian. Maybe one is very good at producing uh, a video story. I've been doing the same thing Excuse me, with some of these, but it 's not just about the people you know i one of my videos that I really enjoyed writing or producing was one on the schools because people wanted their children this as, as one of the uh slave, slave narratives said you know they wanted to uh, tell their story, but they also were happy that the family lived to see a new day because at one time it was all. How did she describe darkness and confusion? And mm-hmm. it's very important to be able to show how this family became resilient. Any single family moved from the era of darkness and confusion to being able to survive. And maybe one can illustrate that perhaps in a photo essay in a series of videos. Um, you know, they're not that difficult to produce people do all kinds of things on youtube but i talked about the schools because people wanted their children to learn and how adamant particularly in chuck chickasaw uh, communities Freedman's communities how they wanted schools so i found a plethora of school records on family search from indian territory freedman school records i just can't look and say oh wow and then look away no 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 go back that collection means something That's a story right there. If you just rely on what the typical narrative is, well, there weren't any schools till statehood. Wrong, (laughs) very wrong. There are stories to tell. And as I said, if you go and pull those records, you've got to move beyond that 20th century barrier. There's more to Oklahoma's story, Oklahoma's African ancestor story, than the black towns of the early 20th century and the Tulsa tragedy in 1921. So we've got to tell these stories because these people were sitting there. And I was very surprised years ago. I remember going to a family history center and thankfully now they are digitized, but I remember finding it was a very fuzzy film, a microfilm, but I saw this from Fort Coffee, in the Scullyville district in the Choctaw nation. And at the bottom that was a little six year old boy, Samuel Walton. Oh my God, that was Grandpa Sam. My grandfather was on a Freedman School roster in Fort Coffee. What if, who knew? Nobody ever said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, your grandpa went to school school in the Choctaw Nation at, at, at Fort Coffee. I didn't even know the family lived in Fort Coffee. I know they lived in Scullyville, but I didn't know specifically at one point in time. They lived in Fort Coffee, which is one of the few remaining black towns, I think one of the 11 that remains to this day. And uh, again, these are things that we've got to look, not just at the document, find grandpa's name, and then go and, you know, tuck it away in a file. The fact that his name was there, that's a story. The story is not that's that his story. name was on a list. The story was that There's a school here. There's a Freedman School here. A Freedman School, a neighborhood school. This is after citizenship was granted in 1885, and these neighborhood schools started to appear. Here were the trustees of the school, the faculty members. Here are the children. These are the families that were there. There's a story there. And um, I guess, you know, my goal is just to tell as many variations of those stories that can be told. The schools, the churches, whatever other institutions were there that they built, um, they saw westward expansion. They lived through the days of, the, of the, the marshals and the outlaws. Well, look at the criminal case records, some of which were people just being incarcerated on drummed-up charges, uh, and some were real cases of, of crime and mayhem. But it still occurred, and it's still part of the narrative, and they need to be looked at. Not to mention, I haven't even mentioned the Civil War. There were people who later designated as freedmen who were freedom fighters. Some went northward into Kansas. They joined the first and second Kansas colored. Others from the Creek Nation and Cherokee Nation, they joined the Indian Home Guard. Some, out of my part of Choctaw Nation, Scullyville, they went over into Fort Smith and they enlisted in the 11th U.S. Colored Infantry. These men were part of the 79th, 83rd, the 11th, the 54th, all these regiments that were part of the United States Colored Troops. They were freedom fighters. We need to talk about these freedom fighters who fought for their own freedom and some who fought for the freedom of others because they had always been free as well, such as Cesar Bruner, who was an interpreter for the Home Guard.
0: There are there are countless stories to tell,
1: and I didn't well, just go Angela, on, and on and
0: on. we are getting close to the end. Do you have any parting remarks? I mean, it's just fascinating to hear your enthusiasm, your great passion. And just telling these stories, I mean, when I read books and I did read every story, I just fell in love with all of them. Oh because I thank you. I thought in my own head how many people even realized that this information is out there that is available when you talk about twenty something thousand families. Uh that's a lot of information out there that people are just not even accessing. So do you Mm -hmm. have any parting remarks before we close today? Well, the one thing I guess I've learned from a lot of this, uh, because this started, my
1: passion for this particular subject area began in 1991, finding my own family. But very quickly I realized, as I began to look at the cards of other families who also enrolled You know, my family's card number, and I'm not a superstitious person, and I don't play the numbers, but when card number 777 came up on the Choctaw Friedman, and it happened to be my family. Wow. um, How about that? (laughs) But I Mm -hmm. realized that it was more than just my family story. So many people get stuck and caught up in the whirlwind, oh, I can't find my, my great-great-grandfather's grandfather. But you know what? It's not just your family and your personal search to make your family tree bigger. It's a story of a community. And so I guess I would mm-hmm. leave your listeners with, number one, the, the charge to not look only at your family. Your family interacted with others. They, number one, they married, intermarried other fa- with other families. But they did have associates. They had relatives. They had church members. They had workers uh, with whom they did business. They bought, they traded, they sold items. They worshipped with others. And some of those people were people who could have even descended from the same families that had once enslaved them. There's a community story that is missing, and my charge to all Freedmen descendants especially is to commit to telling their community stories. When I look at just Scullyville, where my family is from, and I'm realizing, oh, my gosh, it wasn't just Oak Lodge. Oh, my goodness, it was Fort Coffee. It was Brazil Creek. It was Braden. It was Walls. It was Kavanaugh. It was Riddle. These are the communities.
0: Spiro.
1: These are the communities that, you know, now they're bound by the county seat in Poto. These are the Freedmen settlements that existed that were neighbors to my family. And if I want to tell the complete story, the complete story is the community. And amazing things happened in that community. If I didn't look at the community, I never would have heard about Freedmen having their first organizational meeting right after the Civil War. Freedom had just occurred. It occurred in Scullyville, their first meeting. When I look at Scullyville and its history, I didn't know if I had not started to study other families, I would know that there was an act of resistance. There was a slave uprising on the hall plantation in Scullyville. That needs to be told. That's empowering when you suddenly learn I didn't come from people who just sat around waiting to be freed. These are people who took actions to free themselves. And by studying the community, I learned that. And you will learn other things if you start to move beyond your family and making a commitment to documenting the story of others with whom your family had an interaction. Study that community
0: and you'll Capture a remarkable history. Thank you. Wow. Well, Angela, I just want to thank you so very much for taking time today to to really motivate everyone and to do this call to action. It's not just about your family; it's yes. about your community. And I always, in with your ancestors left stories. Well, you're, there's a story in your community also. And those of you that are researching Oklahoma Territory, Indian Territory, you have a lot of stories out there to go and find them. Tell the story. And definitely check out Friedman of the Frontier, Volumes 1 and 2. Thank everyone for tuning in to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to all of you joining me next week. Goodbye, Angela. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bernie. i truly enjoyed it.